1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest live from Boston edition. It's Wednesday, October 22nd, 2014. On today's show, Birdman is the new anti-blockbuster blockbuster blockbuster starring Michael Keaton as an aging Hollywood actor in search of artistic and personal redemption. And then, is the new Esquire article declaring Penelope Cruz the sexiest woman alive the dumbest piece of journalism ever? (laughs) Or just in the bottom 5%? And finally... The polymathic everyman Robert Pinsky He is a poet, an essayist, a translator, and pedagogue He is here to talk about massive online learning And his favorite poems Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner Hello, Julia Hi, Steve And of course uh, (laughs) And of course uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens Hey, Dana Hey, Steve I want to add that we're at the beautiful Wilbur Theater in Boston, Massachusetts. I love there was, some, there was some absolutely awesome classic rock just cranking before we came out here. It was so freaking inappropriate, man. <laughs> All right, digging in. Birdman is the new movie from director Alejandro González Iñárritu, he of Amoros Peros and 21 Grams. Did I Butchered the name, or am I okay? That
3: works for me, Two. Okay.
2: Two. Good. Yeah, very good. It features Michael Keaton as a Hollywood actor who once starred as a superhero in a comic book franchise, but now, nearing the twilight of his career, money and fame hang around his neck like an iron collar. He wants instead, as he says, respect and validation to prove himself and to the world that he's a real actor. To that end, he personally bankrolled a Broadway production of his own adaptation of Raymond Carver's short stories. The movie also stars Naomi Watts, Ed Norton, and Zach Galifianakis. Now, we should begin by acknowledging, right, Julia Turner, that many people in this room have not seen the movie. Uh, It opens in Boston on Friday. Uh, So we want to situate you without spoiling it. Uh, So um, I correct me if I'm wrong, I think there are two things this audience should know about the movie. The first is that until really the very, very end of the film, it's uh, shot in what is meant to look like a single take with no evidence of cuts. If you know the Hitchcock movie Rope, right, Dana? That was the same illusion was striven for there. Um, And then the second thing about the movie that Gives nothing away and may help you um, uh, 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 Make your way through This discussion is that he uh, uh, He jibes at himself For having abandoned the Birdman franchise When it would have made him only more rich and famous By imagining the His Birdman alter ego in full Costume superhero Regalia is, is in the room uh, Kind of uh, hectoring him And, and um, peanut gallerying him Anyway why don't we With no further ado why don't we watch a clip from the movie Um Dana, do you want to set this one up? Do you want me to set it up? What do you yeah, want to do?
3: Yeah, I think all that needs to be known for this one is that Michael Keaton's character, who is Rigan Thompson, a sort of Michael Keaton-like uh, aging actor who once played a superhero, except that unlike Michael Keaton, he's extremely resentful and nostalgic and fixated on his past glory, is putting on a Broadway show, a Broadway show based on a Raymond Carver story. And in this early scene, we see him panicking because his lead actor has just been injured by a falling stage light, Right. Right, and so he's he's desperately searching for for a new lead. So this is probably about five minutes, ten minutes into the movie.
4: We
2: don't have an actor,
1: and if we cancel the first preview, the press is going to smell blood, and we can't afford to lose any more money at all. Okay, what do you think I should do?
2: Well, we hired understudy. Let's use the understudy.
1: No, Reagan, listen to me, please. For the love of God, listen. Our perfect dream actor is not going to knock on that door and go, "Hey, fellas, when do I start?" You know.
0: Can I talk to you for a second? Yeah, what's up? Did you find another actor?
1: No. Yeah. Okay, well, Mike's available. He is? Mm-hmm. Mike who? I thought he was doing the thing. He was. He quit. Or got fired. Mike who? Which is a Quit or fired? Oh, well, with the Mike, it's usually both. Mike fucking who? Shiner. Yes! <laughs> Jake. Oh my gosh, how do you know Mike Shiner? We share a vagina. You think he would want to do it? Mm-hmm. How do you know? Because he told me he wanted to do it. Jake, Jake, yes. Asked me if he sells tickets. <laughs> Fine. Does he sell tickets? He sells a shitload of tickets. Okay. Now ask me if the theater critics love him. The theater critics love him. They want to spooge on him. Hey, Leslie. Right on his face. Everything for a reason, right? think he can come in this evening? I'll call
4: him
2: and find out. I'll
1: call his agent. Amazing.
2: Amazing. Lights, please. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Dana. Uh, the, the movie has many unexpected dimensions to it. One of which is that it's a challenging movie that may do big coin. Uh, I glanced at your review, but I'm curious to know what you thought of it.
3: Yeah, there's a lot going on in Birdman. It's, it's this strange combination of factors where the, it's formally dazzling. You can't really see it in that shot, but you will in a clip that we show later, and we can talk about it, too, about this illusion of a single long take that the whole two-hour-long movie is made of. That is spectacularly conceived and executed, and so beautifully done that really just sort of watching it happen is, en- is enough to get you through the movie, but it struck me as a little bit of sound and fury signifying maybe not so much. And this backstage drama that it narrates is a fairly familiar one, really, really well acted by everybody, especially Michael Keaton, but... It's, it sometimes does feel to me like something is, that is, is such a constantly high emotional pitch that there's no modulation and there's kind of nowhere to go except just hanging on for dear life as it takes you through this sort of ride-like experience. I don't know if you two experienced it that way.
2: I mean, it's a, it's a, I love the juicy backstage procedural of it. It is a self-conscious tour de force, both in the way it's filmed and the way it's performed. Do we have to love tour de forces if sometimes they just exhaust us?
0: I walked out of the movie theater last night more exhilarated by this movie than Ah. I have been by anything I've seen in a long time. And I think it's funny that you used the word ride, Dana. So, the cinematographer in the film and the star of the film is definitely the cinematography. I mean, I don't know why Michael, there have been all these Michael Keaton profiles. Obviously, he's easier to profile than a cinematographer, but it's, it's, um, you'll be able to pronounce it Emmanuel
3: name. Lubezki, Emmanuel Chivo Lubezki, who's We're... the Mexican cinematographer who worked with, well, he's worked most
0: famously and just won an Oscar for Gravity with. All right. Well, so that's, that's why I was bringing him up. The cinematography is the star of the movie. And it, I think when we talked about Gravity on the show, when it came out last year, we had the same point that it felt like a ride like it felt like you were there to see what the camera could do on this big canvas you know that wasn't like a youtube video or a talking head or a you were sitting with your butt in the seat in the dark room to experience something that felt more kind of thrilling and unexpected and technically challenging than you would expect from like an average half hour sitcom or whatever you were going to binge watch on netflix that night and you know this is in addition to being a really interesting movie to watch i think um, you know, it's, it's I think, the, one of the first ones to come out this fall that's part of the, you know, the knell of Oscar movies that will keep tolling all fall and keep you incredibly busy, Dana, watching more worthy movies than your eyes can possibly handle. But this is one of the first big, like, Oscar buzzy contenders to come out. And it did strike me that maybe we're in an age where the, the, the movies that are going to get the big conversations are, are going to be these bravura technical performances as opposed to, thematically interesting I mean I kind of agree that it's a little bit empty in the middle like uh, aging guy looks back in his life has regret eh, you know like it doesn't have a lot new, <laughs> a new... I regret touching that microphone um, it is not you know I'm not sure it breaks new ground there or is particularly interesting but it's just so fun to watch and then the camera work is so amazing I mean I would there's not a single person I would say don't see this movie it didn't bother me that it was empty at its core basically <laughs>
4: Ah.
2: Many things that are empty at their core are wonderful and fetching, but but to be that, (laughs) they ought to have a certain salutary awareness of their own emptiness, and I would not say that that's what distinguishes this particular movie. Yeah, I was going
3: to say, this movie is a little bit in love with its own technique and its own frenzied pace.
2: First of all, I like the movie very much, and I recommend it highly. I think the performances are amazing, but it's a movie driven i mean as cinematically self conscious as it is with the camera it 's driven by uh, the actors it and the performances by the actors, which are great, but it raised the question for me over and over again okay so you 've externalized this particular artistic struggle in a way that 's somewhat unique and novel, which is you know typically you have someone who uh, what 's squatting on his conscience is his own success he 's not someone who didn't achieve fame and money. In fact, he's someone who got everything he thought he wanted and then discovered he didn't. I thought you know, that that's pro- very provocative. And the way it's externalized and dramatized in the movie with this alter ego really haunting him and, um, uh, and, and following him around, it, it's such an odd... Conscience doesn't usually take the form of telling you you left money on the table, right? Like, you didn't you didn't go back for more. You know, well, which, but I don't
3: think the Birdman is his conscience. I was going to ask you what you guys think about, well, about all the kind of magic realist elements, but most specifically of this existence of his alter ego who haunts him in his dressing room and so forth. At times he seems to be kind of a conscious, sometimes he seems to be a devil on the shoulder, tempting him back into some sort of life of of egoism and self-absorption. It's really unclear to me what the moral no, power thought, of that... I, that well, that character is. What
2: I thought was interesting about it, Julie, correct me if I'm wrong, is that is that he's, he's thrown his entire lot, like financially and aesthetically, into trying to make this Raymond Carver short story adaptation work. But the thing that's on him is this old you know, superhero alter ego who's basically telling him, you fool, you fucking fool, like you left all this money, you didn't do this. I thought it was really the bizarre anti-conscience of success or something. Am I completely no, wrong? No, I
0: guess you're right, because it's not... The the demon on his shoulder isn't saying you're going to fail. The demon on his shoulder is saying this effort is beneath you. Like you don't have to be here in this dingy dressing room trying to make this play work with these weirdo Broadway people. Um, but somehow, and you're right, that is that is more unexpected than i would given it credit for. But it still doesn't seem to amount to a fascinating portrait of fame. I mean, to me, I think the movie works best if you kind of ignore all the magical realist elements and the like, where's this guy in his life? And you just think of it as a really dark, really beautiful, like backstage comedy. And then it's kind
2: of great. Mm -hmm. Dana, here's another way that I thought about it. Let me try this one. Um, I did think of it as self-consciously an anti-blockbuster. It invokes a lot of images from the comic book franchise blockbusters as a way of you know, deriding them, really, and looking looking down on them. He feels as though having played this character alienates him from his own humanity and his own potential to express it as an artist. I felt, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in order to earn the credibility with a wider audience for hating on something that the wider audience might like... It first had to vilify and sacrifice the critic. You must have noticed that this movie hates the figure of the critic.
3: Right. There's this figure of a, of a theater critic who periodically will see her in a bar scribbling notes for her latest nasty dismissing review. And then her, one of her climactic scenes with the Michael Keaton character is that he comes in on the night before their big opening preview. And she essentially tells him, I haven't even seen your play, but I've already decided I'm going to destroy it because I don't like you. Yeah. I mean, I just, that was part of this movie's very narrow kind of cultural vision that it's sort of it imagines this world where an artist struggles to make his great work, right? I think that too is very identified with that, and that in some ways it's, it's about being a director, right? Not a film director in this case, but it's kind of him in living that fantasy. And... And forces, whether it's the force of, you know, the devil on his shoulder of the old birdman or the commerce, you know, Zach Galifianakis saying, we don't have the money to put on the play, or this critic, that there's all these external forces that are keeping poor little birdman from being able to put on his play. And I think that there is a little bit of a self-pitying strain running through it. And there's something very interesting to be said about the relationship between artists and critics, but I don't think that... That scene says it. It's just, there's something about it is just too sour and too narrow and too oh, binary. She's
2: very much a cartoon figure. We're meant to, rev- I mean, absolutely revile her. He literally skips nothing away, but he leans over her in a Broadway bar uh, and he says, what, what must have happened to someone in their life that they become a critic? <laughs> Which I ask myself every day. Well, you can
3: imagine that, the laugh that that got in the all-press screening that they saw the movie, and they loved it. They ate it up.
2: All right, I'm it's f- like
3: Ratatouille, right? Nobody critics love to be put down by fictional representations of themselves.
2: All right, I totally effed up, and I forgot we had a second clip. I throw it up in a vote to the group. Do we go look at the second I think clip? I we should
3: show the second clip, because it gives a sense of that vertiginous motion of the camera. Yeah,
0: yeah and I actually I want to ask you, Dana, too, what you make of this kind of stunt filmmaking. It's obviously beautiful, but, like, is it a little bit too much? Um, just to set this up, it'll start out on stage. They found the actor they were talking about in the first clip. He's played by Edward Norton. He comes on stage and they're kind of testing out the lines and and you'll see it's a little bit of a power struggle between him and Michael Keaton's character. Uh, And then from there, the camera just takes us.
1: Hey, I'm the wrong person to ask. I oh no! Know but the that's guy. the thing. See, I'm the wrong person to ask. What is it? I think it's
0: fuck you. Fuck you. Don't don't put me on the spot, man. Right. Don't 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 make me feel self conscious about my marriage while my le- my wife is sitting right there. Right there. Right there. Yeah.
1: Can I sit? Yes. Yeah, sit. So, sit. Good idea.
4: Yeah.
0: So, so just, just
1: give it to me as a fuck you. Right. Try it, lay it on me. Yeah. Just do it. Come on, give it to well, me. Thank fuck it. me hard. Okay. Just do it. Yeah. Give it.
4: Right. Come on, okay. don't talk okay. about yeah. it. Just
1: yeah. the don't wrong person ask, right? I don't even know the guy. Okay, what's your point? What's my point? Yeah, what's your point? What are you saying? Spit it out. Oh. You're saying what? Oh. What are you saying? You're saying love is absolute. Yes, yes. The kind of love that I'm talking about, it is absolute. The kind of love that I'm talking about, you don't. You don't try to kill people.
0: The Edward Norton character is really just so funny.
2: He's pretty hilarious. By the way, that was like me and Pinsky in the green room before we came out here. (laughs) Fuck me. Fuck me. No, you fuck
3: me. (laughs) I just thought of seeing them together too. That I didn't think of seeing it before is that Ed Norton and Michael Keaton have very similar energies as actors. In a way, they're both a little bit hammy, very intense, a little bit. They have that kind of um, intellect. You know, they have a, like an intellectual edge to what they're playing, even when they're they're playing a little bit of a meathead.
2: Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way before. But it's Ed Norton. The the role that he plays is meant to send. Michael Keaton's character further in the direction of your sympathies because it's Norton who's the crazy actor who just takes method beyond method to someplace completely self-indulgent and insane and then needs to bring it back so that as Keaton is digging these deep maundering monologues about acting, you think, oh, he's not the heavy, you know, he, you, you know, it's meant to kind of build sympathy with him.
3: This, this segment's going to go too long, but I have to ask you guys, did you think that the production of the Raymond Carver story that Michael Keaton's character was putting on was supposed to be a good play or not? That seems important to the, to the sense of the movie for me. There's moments of triumph, there's moments of, you know, ter- when it lands terribly in front of the audience, but I couldn't tell overall whether too wanted us to think
0: that it was a good show. I think that scene is actually kind of key to it because you do earlier in the in the movie you you see a much worse version of that scene, um, and you do feel the charge that they feel like connecting with each other on the stage. You feel like they've gotten something that they hadn't had before. It seems like a hammy, overwrought night at the theater. Like it doesn't actually seem necessarily great. I don't. The movie doesn't seem to care whether the play is good, and maybe that's a flaw of the I movie. Agree. Yeah. But maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know. I mean, I just before we close, I know we we've gone too long, but. I mean, that the filmmaking stunt of it, the, the bravura of it, it, it was mesmerizing. It wasn't irritating, even though I think of myself as someone who's irritated by high-concept stunts like that. And I'm just curious, Dana, what you, what you t- thought.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess it sounds like it swept you up more than it swept me up. I think I was very early on able to make this division between the form and the content and say, okay, content-wise, this is not going to be anything that'll blow me away, but it's so formally interesting that I'll go with it. But... I think that does make it a little bit of a gimmick and a stunt because it doesn't feel like it's unfolding naturally from the, the essence of the material. Mm-hmm. It feels a little bit like something laid on top, like, you want to do some long shots in Gravity, Alfonso Cuaron? I'll go you one better. You know, there's a little <laughs> bit of a sense of, like, I'm going to show you what I can do. And to me, it makes Inari too seem like a less fascinating filmmaker than Cuaron.
2: Mm. All right, well, the movie is Birdman. It opens widely, I think, this Friday. Go check it out. Tell us what you think of it at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash... Culture Fest. All right, we're backstage at the Wilbur Theater in Boston, Massachusetts, and this podcast is brought to you by Acura and the all-new 2015 TLX luxury performance sedan. For decades, Acura has built performance sedans with unwavering purpose and passion. The all-new 2015 TLX represents more than the latest evolution. It's the clearest expression yet of Acura's performance philosophy. It's power and control brought into perfect balance. It's anticipating where the driver wants to go, changing the way the wheels move and guide you. It's uncompromised design in the name of unrestrained feeling, putting exhilaration front and center once again. Is that kind of thrill. Check out the all-new 2015 TLX at acura.com slash TLX. Rebecca, experience the thrill for yourself. Go and take a test drive at your local Acura Dealer. All right, well back to the show. Julia. Correct me if I'm wrong, but stipulated. People love lists, superlatives, and digitally enhanced side boob. (laughs) Nonetheless, you can answer that if you'd like.
0: At Slate we only traffic in
2: a few of those, but I won't say which one. (laughs) So maybe now isn't the time to announce Slate's Sexiest Adjunct Alive issue?
0: (laughs) Not yet. I can't reveal.
2: We'll leave that be. Okay. Nonetheless, uh, can whatever affection anyone might still have for the sexiest fill-in-the-blank alive genre really survive this latest installment? From Esquire, about the actress Penelope Cruz, their piece naming her the sexiest woman alive begins with a several hundred-word rhapsody about bullfighting in Madrid. It reads a little like Hemingway if Hemingway had been beaten senseless with an old J. Peterman catalog <laughs> uh, before sitting down at the typewriter. And it goes on and on. I am not exaggerating. I mean, it's, it's preposterous. You feel as though maybe you were snuck a tab of acid before you started reading. It's unreal. And then there's finally a break, uh, an actual physical break in the text. And then you read... Penelope Cruz lifts her perfect eyebrows from her bottomless brown eyes at the mention of Sunday's entertainment The bullfights, she says The bullfights I guess there was an echo um, She says again as though she has never heard the word Her mouth turns down at its corners <laughs> Julia Every, every now and then the gob is smacked as if for the first time. And, I mean, this is, I, I don't even, I, I'm at such a loss for word, I'm going to totally plagiarize you. You said the way to frame this is the state of ogling in the age of internet porn and internet feminism. Go. <laughs>
0: um, well, I really feel for the editors of Esquire. I mean, this, this. <laughs> This thing that they do, The Sexiest Woman Alive, it's a thing that a lot of magazines do a version of, right? People has The Sexiest Man Alive. Sports Illustrated has the swimsuit issue. Very early in my career, I worked at Sports Illustrated Women, where we had a men's swimsuit issue. And for that, I came up to Boston and got to watch Adam Vinatieri in a bathing suit, super greased up, like kicking a football into a white seamless all afternoon. (laughs) Very close. Very close can't say that that was the journalistic highlight of my career, but it was definitely interesting. Um, so magazines do this. It's a way to gather it, attract attention. You can get a famous person to show up for something if you're giving them an award as opposed to if you're just writing about them. Um, and, you know, so these things these pieces still happen, but the likelihood that any of them would be good and not make you embarrassed for the magazine that's doing them, as particularly in Esquire's case, is diminished because there are a bunch of forces working against it. One is celebrities have no need to give access to journalists anymore. They don't need journalists to interpret them or sell them in quite the way that they used to. If they want to showcase their own. You know, cool, funny, off-the-cuffness. They can start a Twitter account or an Instagram feed or a Tumblr, and and convey whatever you know little anecdotes of personal life they want to share in their own controlled way. Um, you know, Beyonce does this with her Instagram right now. You know, she's she's photos. She's been accused of photoshopping her own Instagrams to suggest that she has like an even skinnier golf course self than you thought, you know, whatever, but, but they can massage their own personal presentation and, and get out that kind of, Oh, she's such a nice girl. Anecdotes that you, that used to be the province of this sort of piece that used to be what was in it for a celebrity to do a piece like this. So the journalists get no access. I mean, this whole piece is a, an elaborate write around that substitutes bullfighting for the fact that the guy got 20 minutes at lunch with Penelope Cruz. She's, you know, there's a lot of references in the profile to she just had kids. Her husband Javier Bardem is away. She doesn't want to answer any questions. She eats a steak and walks out of the restaurant, <laughs> leaving me behind like a like a stuck bull. But she um, leaves a puddle of blood and a bone <laughs> on the plate, Julia. And I, reminiscent feel... of a bullfight, if you will. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> but you know, I just I feel like there's contempt for the whole project laced through the piece yeah. in a way that you can just read it and it makes you feel bad for the people writing it and editing it. That said, Esquire has its own particular pompous and weird way of doing leering that has always rubbed me the wrong way. Like, if you're Maxim, or, I mean, Playboy, I don't even know, but if you're, if you're Maxim, you're like, we're going to grease him up and put him in a, like, Santa bodice and <laughs> have, stick him on and, the cover for December. And have him kick
2: field goals. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's like, man, she's hot. It's the hot list. Esquire likes to pretend they're, like, the literary man's ogle and so like the piece will always be they'll take care to really emphasize some unusual body part like her lovely ankles or her her like sinuous limbs or her gorgeous clavicle like they can't just admit that they're looking at the parts that everybody else looks at and I honestly can't think who is the audience for this kind of piece I mean apart from like journalists who want to titter about it but like Steve you are a very literary man oh god (laughs) Like, does it make you feel better to ogle half-naked pictures of hot actresses if there's, like, purple prose around it?
2: <laughs> Have I told you I play guitar? I'm a, I'm a guitarist. I'm a play. Um, do I, I mean, I, let me put it this way. Okay, I find P- Penelope Cruz is a very beautiful woman, incredibly talented actress. I, I mean, I can't, even, I can't even bullshit it. I mean, I, I just thought those photographs were so demeaning to her talents and her essence i just the photographs that accompany the profile are really just dana they strike me just, i'm at, i hate to be the you know i hate to get up on the P- julia turner park bench but that is like <laughs> that is some inappropriate shit <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> you didn't you didn't like the yellow uh what was swiss dot <laughs> in all kinds of get
2: move on, Julia. I've, I've, I have a little game I'd like to play, okay? And uh, also we're going to start with a total softball. All right, I'm going to read the quote from a sexiest ex-alive profile, and you tell me who the star is. You can shout it out, too. The first one's so easy, okay? In the, excuse me, in the course of the evening, she will allow me to moisten the tip of my finger with my tongue and try to... <laughs>
0: We're Wait, so for our listeners, we have to explain that guy just like an audible "ooh" From the audience
2: <laughs> I wrote this by the way um, <laughs> uh, It was my Alan Smithy project um, uh, And try to wipe off the makeup under which Had once been written Billy Bob <laughs> All right, so that's, that's a, gimme. Oh, that's a gimme. gimme I started with a gimme uh, right. Angelina Jolie Very good, okay here's the next one She grabs her own radiant ass <laughs> It's a portrait of it's a, it's a profile of Dennis Stevens actually In, in, in Salon uh, Oh my god Alright uh, She grabs her own radiant ass She handles it Offers it Like it's a rump roast
0: The <laughs> I thing I love best about that one which I happen to know is Rihanna because it was quoted in a great, great slate piece about this whole phenomenon. Um, it's like, what restaurant is that Right, are you? Like, when are you served rump roast in that manner? Like, a slice carved off of it in a plate of O juice? Like, it's not... Anyway, so many Radiantly meat metaphors. Radiantly grabbed by the waitress. Steve, you are totally obfuscating and deflecting and avoiding my
2: question. I've got one by more. Just give me one more. <laughs> and then I'll sing one by you two with the guitar. Um, no. Um, she geez, you people... <laughs> What so we well, but that actually raises.
0: <laughs> that raises one question though. I mean the, the 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 thing that has happened now. I really do think that these pieces are at this funny juncture between internet porn and internet feminism like whatever person you know this style of writing about women that Esquire, you know, has perfected for whatever you will say of sort of the thinking man's ogle just seems less and less and less useful than it ever was in an era where you can immediately click up pictures of whoever you want in whatever state of undress you want at any time. And also this moment where there is this rising culture of feminism on the web where every single thing that gets written in this vein is going to get scrutinized by a bunch of really smart writers at a bunch of really smart sites. I mean, one of my favorite things that Slate published last week was Katie Waldman's assessment of, is it possible to write a halfway decent uh, profile like this? And as Steve's example suggested is very difficult. I think she did conclude that, A guy did a kind of nice job with Mila Kunis a couple years ago, Um, but you know, say
2: Mila (laughs) Kunis,
0: Mila, Mila Kunis. Mila Kunis. She was in Black Swan. She was the bad girl. Um, In any event, you know, like it just it's 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 easy to make fun of it, but it also just feels like it's this culture of looky-loo at celebrities that. Is dying.
3: But well, are, is people's sexiest man alive? Should it be subject to the same scrutiny? Or because the genders are reversed, is it somehow less ogly and leering? I mean, to me, people's sexiest man alive seems like sort of the classier manifestation of this same scenario, right?
0: Well, I mean, I think this comes. Whenever you're ogling men, there's like a frisson of newness to it because they're less obviously ogled. Maybe once they get more used to being ogled and more beleaguered by, beleaguered by oglement, they will. Um, <laughs> we will resist that too but it feels it sort of feels like such a lark the sexiest man alive like it doesn't actually impinge and also they don't I mean for all that I was there in the room when they greased up Adam Vinatieri and made him kick for like two hours fundamentally it was there because he had achieved something on the football field Um, whereas it it feels like they're like we need someone hot who will say yes this year
2: right this calls to mind an incredible story right so First of all, I think there are two related but somewhat separable issues. There's one: how the use of these images sells magazines, and I think we can watch as both this kind of feature and the magazine as we've known it swirl down the toilet together. Right? I mean, that that well, Slate's not the magazine as we ever knew it, right? Um, <laughs> and then there's how these images are used to sell. The star image of the actress Right And there's this incredible story From the early 80s About Michael Eisner Or or Simpson and Bruckheimer The producers were casting Flashdance And it came down to three actresses One of whom was Demi Moore One of whom was the woman who got the part Whose name is Jennifer Beals And a third who's lost to history Um, and, uh, And they couldn't pick It was like an eeny meeny situation They didn't know what to do So Michael Eisner There were some teamsters, some union guys doing work in the hallway. He's like, guys, come in here, come in here. And he puts down three, like, you know, sexy shots of all three actresses. And he says, which one do you want to fuck? And, like, all of them were like Jennifer Beals. And they were like, you get the part. And that's the origin of a word that is still current in Hollywood to describe actresses, which is fuckable, right? And it's. I
3: have a feeling that's not the origin of that word. (laughs) As, we'll consult the OED as,
2: as, on that one. As, as a... Tra- <laughs> oh, my God. As a... You should do a Dikembe Mutembo finger wag when you do, <laughs> do this. Um, no, but as a term of art in Hollywood, I do think that that's the origin of it. It was not widely in, uh, uh, in circulation before that. But anyway, I, it, th- this is what leads... I mean, Penelope Cruz is part of this equation, too. It's not just some you know, dimwit, overwrought... You know, oxygen you know, deprived writer uh, flushing his prose with purple, you know, uh, it's, and an editor who's willing to uh, 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 abide by it, and a magazine that's willing to stick around the cover and demeanor in this way, she's part of the equation too. She agrees to it for a reason, and that's a horrible reason. It has nothing at all to do with her being shallow, it has to do with the economy and the sexual economy of her own business and image, and it's sad that she has to do it.
3: I have to say, though, that she comes off really well in that profile because she's completely opaque. I mean, the person who sits there for two paragraphs in the middle of this huge, enormous blather about bullfighting and eats a steak and leaves seems so much classier and more dignified
0: than anyone else on the page or, or writing it. <laughs> it's true. You do come away with respect for her contempt for the whole project. LAUGHTER but then that and makes, then you see the photos. I you're mean, right. But then the, that makes the whole thing feel like very curdled and transactional. Where you're like, all right, well, she agreed to like pull her camisole down and like pout at the camera and eat a steak and get out of town. And it, <laughs> it's it's not, a bad date. It's like a really yeah. bad day.
2: <laughs> exactly. All right. So any one last one? Any guesses? Who she looks like a woman? She exudes womanness. <laughs> Is
3: Madeline Albright. I'm a. <laughs> <laughs> Scarlett fuckable. Johansson. Scarlett Johansson.
2: It is, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, I think we've done this subject uh, justice. <laughs> Moving on. Um, I, I I don't want to say the words. Speaking of fuckable. <laughs> <laughs> T- just Can stone. we Please edit that out of my ha- Can you <laughs> fucking eternal Eternal spot sunshine Me right now I can't believe I made that joke about the Wonderful polymath Robert Pinsky But
4: <laughs>
2: But I had to I had to uh, he and I Had quite the get a room moment backstage Like Julia actually had to leave They the room. were literally
0: like reciting Frost in, in tandem, unison. like <laughs> At each other
2: The shattered water may yeah, have missed enough, the- enough. Yeah, Okay <laughs> Robert Pinsky is a poet, translator, essayist, editor, and pedagogue. I love that word. He's a professor of English and creative writing at Boston University. He was the poet laureate of the United States and for Slate he has written about everything from the virtues of memorizing poetry, even if badly, to the myth of John Keats having been killed by a bad review. Will you please welcome the truly the wonderful Robert Pinsky to the stage? Thank you so much for indulging this.
1: Great pleasure so far.
2: <laughs> All right, before we really uh, dig in for reals, uh, um, it is a, it, uh, it's a great American poet's birthday
1: today. Ah, <laughs> who is that? Um, it's not Arthur Rambeau, and it's not Mickey Mantle, though it is both of their birthdays today, and it is also mine. <laughs> Boom.
0: Those are much fancier birthday shares than I have. The most famous
2: person who has my birthday is Britney Spears. (laughs) <laughs> I'm Virginia Woolf and Robert Burns Dana you surely I'm
3: Princess Diana and I can't remember who else I, got,
0: I gotta get some better names
2: Alright well clearly we'd like to talk to you about everything um, but we don't uh, uh, have time for that so we thought we'd concentrate on two subjects in particular the MOOC which stands for Massive Open Online Courses we'll get to the second one in a minute um, these are free online college courses often taught by eminences such as yourself somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 million people have signed up for from MOOCs, how many are signed up for your teaching one called The Art of Poetry? How many do you got so far? Uh,
1: 15,000 people registered for The Art of Poetry. It's now in its third week. And of the 15,000 who registered by clicking, it's free as well as open and massive. Some 6,000 are watching the video lectures and discussions and doing this stuff. So I'm told that's a very good, uh, what do you call a non attrition rate? the retention, thank you, Uh, we have retained uh, 6,000 so far out of 15,000. That's magnificent.
2: And in the course teaser, you say this course is based on the conviction that the more you know about an art, the more pleasure you will find in it. Uh, I wanted to ask you, when I was a graduate student in English literature, pleasure was a little bit like crying in baseball in Eight Men Out or whatever the Tom Hanks movie is. Is that it? No, it's the other one. League of Their Own, exactly. Anyway, one <laughs> pro, um, you know, there was no pleasure in poetry. Is um, one appeal of teaching a class outside of the traditional confines of academia that you get to talk about pleasure and poetry without hesitation
1: or shame? I've been talking about pleasure and poetry in classrooms and all the time. Uh, I have many. I had a very, very disgraceful high school career. I did not get good grades. Uh, I have all my life only like to do things I feel like doing. Uh, There was a time in my life when it got me a lot of trouble. For the last 25 or 30 years, it seems okay. (laughs) I don't read things that I think are boring. I don't eat food I don't want. I just do what I feel like it. And uh, that's my approach to trying to help people enjoy poetry. I almost wonder if course is the wrong word for the MOOC. Um, It is set up as a course. There are sort of chapters a week. So far, it's more like making a book or a movie. There are these 10-minute mini-lectures that I give, and then we have people around a table, eight people, and uh, it's a high school kid, it's a gardener, professional landscaper, it's not necessarily poets or students. And um, we talk, or I give the lectures, and we filmed it in a black box. So it's not a filmed classroom. And I, uh, now in week three uh, on the discussion forum, people say, is it too late to start? And, of course, we say, no, there's the, it's, it's the web. <laughs> this stuff is all there. And uh, that is why I think, that in a way, the word course, it's a convenient way to sort of convey what it is. But it's starting to feel more like something I wrote or some mixed media thing I did. Uh, and um, it is indeed devoted to pleasure. Which I do associate with the word art. It's called the
2: art of poetry. Well, it seems to me among the many mandates you've exhibited in your career so far is uh, you want to disinhibit people a little bit when it comes to poetry. Maybe they, asso- I too got crap grades in school for the longest time. I associated poetry with homework, uh, with a, a archaic formalism. Uh, with learning something I didn't care to learn, and it was over time I realized it is maybe the you know, deepest you know, pleasure there is, possibly. That, uh, is that part of what uh, you invest in the MOOC, but also the Favorite Poem Project?
1: Yeah. I feel like Julia's saying she feels sorry for the editors at Esquire. I feel sorry for school. We need school. School is a good thing, basically, and it makes so many things go wrong. Um, sports... There are people who, because of some humiliation in school, don't enjoy sports. Dancing. People would say, oh, I, I, can't, I don't know how to dance. A three-year-old at a wedding starts dancing. <laughs> the music plays and the kid moves around. And as is said about drawing and painting, little children enjoy poetry. Poetry. And they don't feel, oh, I'm not smart enough for it or I need to be instructed in it. And uh, if you put a kid in your lap and you read Edward Lear or Dr. Seuss or Robert Louis Stevenson, um, they have a good time. And uh, it's intellectually demanding, so can a lot of things be, and it's also physically demanding. You have to be willing. It's For me, the, the, the moment of poetry is like the moment when you're thinking something and you're about to say it. I have an idea, and then I'm going to say, I have an idea, or something. And when you say the poem by Emily Dickinson or William Butler Yeats or Robert Hayden, you're sharing that moment when you need to say a certain thing. It's intellectual and it's bodily. And that's the whole idea of the MOOC is that it is, you're supposed to feel it in two places. And it is like when you're that moment of speech is at the, the, that mind-body transition. That's so deep in us. You know, I have an idea, and then I start making these oh, grunts come out of my special organ I have here, and uh, this breath, breath. And that's right where the mind and the body come together, is every time you start to yak.
0: It's funny to focus on the mind-body connection in a form that's so virtual and so digital. Do you have a sense of how students are responding, how the people watching the course are responding to it, what their take is, what they're learning?
1: I have often had to deal with this thing of page or the stage, uh, not either one. It's not theatrical, it's not written. And the web offers an actual auditory experience. In fact, you can see somebody's face when they read a poem and it was making the favorite poem videos made me realize you can see someone read a poem. It's not just like when I watch your face when you're listening to music or I watch your face while you're reading a novel. When I see you say a poem aloud, I was watching Stephen say uh, to Earthward uh, in in the green room, uh, you are watching that person read a poem. And I think the, the, the web medium, the digital medium, is very good for that. And uh, in a way, it restores a kind of uh, sociable way that people do poetry in many cultures, including my personal one. Uh, So in a way, the web gives Americans an opportunity to become just a little bit more like Arabs or Bengalis reciting to one another.
3: Robert, you talked about the MOOC, but you didn't say much about the Favorite Poems Project. And I wanted you to talk about that and how it started and how you find people to do it.
1: Um, The advertising budget for the Favorite Poem Project back in around 2000 was something like $11. (laughs) And any time I was interviewed, I was Poet Laureate at the time, I would say, will you print our little form in your magazine or newspaper? I'd say it in in, in, uh, audio. And we got 18,000 people, and it was not a poll. I said, write a few sentences about why you love a particular poem. And it gives a whole other idea of what Americans are like. 18,000 people wrote sentences. And if you go to favoritepoem.org, go to favoritepoem.org, you'll see a construction worker talking very cogently about Leaves of Grass, and he reads his passages from Leaves of Grass very well not in a hammy way. You'll see uh, a Cambodian-American high school student read Langston Hughes' Minstrel Man, and she'll read it, uh, relate that to the horrible, horrible experience of her family uh, fleeing the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia. And these are Americans who did write these sentences, and then we videoed them. I'm happy to say we have some new ones. We shot... Uh, six in Chicago. We're going to do some new ones. So you can go on the web now at favoritepoem.org and see Tom Moran, a school custodian uh, outside of Chicago. And he reads Theodore Retke's The Waking and talks about his job. And they seem almost made up. I've had people ask me, who were these actors? I didn't find the people. They found the project. And uh, thank you, Dana for asking about it. They're really
3: extraordinary videos. I really advise everyone to go look at the the favorite poem site because they are such unexpected stories and and unexpected choices on the parts of many of the readers.
1: Yeah. Schools sometimes have favorite poem things. The thing I love is that one school listed all of the favorite poems without saying who had chosen them. So you could guess which was the principal, which was the custodian, and so forth. Um, I think they're a great teaching tool. And they're also, they're fun to watch. You get the combination of art, person reading a poem, and gossip, you know, why this Chinese-American kid in Atlanta chose that. Right.
0: Now that I know that you judge how people read them, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit this, but we brought favorite poems for you. That's great.
1: (laughs) In a word, cool.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Fuckable. All right, who wants to... (laughs) You got to go cheap. That wasn't the word I had. (laughs) (laughs) Who wants to start... Uh, Dana?
1: Well,
3: we're, we're flashing them up on the screen, right? And I think that I think I'm think i first.
2: Okay, excellent.
3: Just to set up my poem, I brought in my own ancient, much bookmarked copy of uh, Emily Dickinson's Complete Poetry, because mine is an Emily Dickinson poem untitled, like all of her poems. It's from 1862, which was the period when she was kind of writing at a, at a white heat. It was when she wrote all her greatest poems in the early 1860s and late 1850s. And, of course, choosing your favorite poem poem is an absurdity by definition, but this is one that I love very much, and one of the few that I know by heart, but I probably won't be able to do it in front of you, so I'll read it out loud. I died for beauty, but was scarce adjusted in the tomb, when one who died for truth was lain in an adjoining room. He questioned softly why I failed. For beauty, I replied, and I, for truth, themselves are one, we brethren are, he said. And so, as kinsmen met a knight, We talked between the rooms until the moss had reached our lips and covered up our names. So I I wanted to read this one because I think it's, well, it's an incredible poem, but it's something that's a simple idea that I can sort of talk about in front of everybody. Um, I think what speaks to me so much in this poem has to do with, uh, with how it's about the limits of poetry, right? I mean, it, it takes Keats's Beauty is Truth, Truth, Beauty and, and finds a third term, right? Finds something outside of it, which is that whatever ideal you die for, right? You're, you're still there. You're still just a, a body in a tomb sort of moldering away. And yet it's strangely not a depressing poem. I find it a yeah. really... Inspiring and uplifting one. Something about this conversation between the two dead people about their different values when they were alive. It's, it's a ghostly conversation. It's such a great idea for a poem. Yeah, I, and then just the rhyme scheme and the delicacy. It's just, it says so much in those three stanzas.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, something as grim in a way as The Moss Had Reached Our Lips, because it's so eloquent and it's just so good, it cheers you up. <laughs> it makes you, until The Moss Had Reached Our Lips. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It also feels that, like, that's, like their conversation is drawing to a close at the end. Like when the moths gets there, maybe they'll stop. But at least they've found some kind of commonality.
3: Right. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I have no excuse for why that poem doesn't depress me. But yeah, I, I agree, <laughs> Robert. It's,
1: it's something about art. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, I don't see what's so great about having the text up on the screen.
0: Well, I'm so interested in this because I'm such a visual person. So I love... Your favorite poems, videos, but I—I'm like dying to see the text in front of me.
1: <laughs> Amazing! You got your wish. Wow!
0: <laughs> I have so much power in this new job. Um,
2: I think Andy's checking his email. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, all right. Well, mine is an excerpt of from poem fifty-two uh, from Midsummer, which is a poem cycle by Derek Walcott, and I, I think published in nineteen eighty-four. No language is neutral. The green oak of English is a murmurous cathedral where some took umbrage, some peace, but every shade, all, helped widen its shadow. I used to haunt the arches of the British barracks of Vigie. There were leaves there, bright, rotting like revers or epaulets, and the stenches of history and piss. Leaves piled like the dropped H's of soldiers from rival shires, from the brimstone trenches of Agincourt to the gas of the Somme. On poppy day, our schools bought red paper flowers. They were for Flanders. I saw Hotspur cursing the smoke through which a popinjay minced from the battle. Those raging commanders from Thersites to Percy, their rant is our model. I pinned the poppy to my blazer. It bled like a vowel. I love this poem because I grew grew up in this city completely enamored of the English language and not yet fully cognizant of all of the history behind it, right? I mean, I don't think anyone can be cognizant of all of the history behind it, but it's this incredibly beautiful, potent, interesting, complicated language that has so many influences within it, that has done so much, that was an agent of this empire, that did so many dark things all over the planet. Um, and, And I love how this poem plays with the language, you know, takes it... Tell some of that story and, and does it with this rollicking rhythm that you just can't let go of. And then I just love that last line. Like, I oh. feel like the way he lands that plane, you're just like, damn.
1: Yes. And <laughs> it's a little bit like the moss, you know. It bled like a vowel about mm-hmm. the red poppy. Just... And correct me if I'm wrong,
2: this is Derek Walcott's probably... Par- partially his relationship to the English language, right? Yes, it's, it's, a colonial. it's interesting.
1: Both poems are in part about a relationship to language that's not just totally ardent and committed. Right. Uh, that's partly a, a relationship to language that is is—it's like a troubled love affair, in this case with the English language itself. Yeah.
0: But it's like anyone who's capable of conjuring those rhythms and all of those slant rhymes is someone who's totally in love with the language, even as he's writing about how yeah. complicated well, Derek, it is.
1: Derek, if I can quote Derek, someone of my colleague and friend, Derek has said, uh, well, colonialism uh, made me read Shakespeare. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was once <laughs> yeah. on a panel. Somebody set up a panel on empir- empires, and there were three of us. There's, I think, great uh, Polish poet Adam Zagajewski talking about the Soviet empire. Derek talking about the British Empire. I had the unpleasant task of talking about the American Empire. <laughs> <Really> <laughs> which, which prevented you from reading Shakespeare. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, uh, and uh, Derek fooled everybody and confused the audience completely by speaking in praise of the uh, British Empire, and he contrasted it with the French. French people, I know, have been infuriated when I tell them this, but he says that the teachers and the gendarmes in the English-speaking islands were native people. And uh, he has a lot of, clearly in this poem, you know, the stench of piss in history. uh, But he's very aware that the reason English has such a fat dictionary, bigger than the English, uh, than the French or the Italian dictionary, is the island was invaded so many times. That uh, the Germanic tribes expropriated and raped and dominated the Celts and the Scandinavians came in and all these waves and then the Norman invasion And the vocabulary from all this horrible history, the language itself became kind of omnivorous and polyglot because it, you know, it became an imperial language, but it was also a kind of a pigeon's repeated uh, pigeon after pigeon after pigeon, or creole after creole, because of all those invasions.
2: Mm. All right. Well, in contrast, my poem is from Robert Frost, um, (laughs) who was uh, Frost was a Classicist and uh, Very well read in Greek and Latin And I've always believed that The great Towering achievement of Robert Frost Is taking vernacular American English and turning it into an ancient Language And this poem is called To Earthward And should I do the whole thing? It's not that short Oh, do the whole thing To Earthward By Robert Frost Love at the lips was touch as sweet as I could bear And once that seemed too much, I lived on air that crossed me from sweet things. The flow of, was it musk from hidden grapevine springs downhill at dusk? I had the swirl and ache from sprays of honeysuckle that when they're gathered shake dew on the knuckle. I craved strong sweets, but those seem strong when I was young. The petal of the rose it was that stung. Now no joy but lacks salt that is not dashed with pain and weariness and fault. I crave the stain of tears, the aftermark of almost too much love, the sweet of bitter bark and burning clove. When stiff and sore and scarred, I take away my hand from leaning on it hard in grass and sand. The hurt is not enough. I long for weight and strength to feel the earth is rough to all my length. I've I just always... Robert regarded this as a perfect poem. I, I just I just can't imagine it any other way than the way it is. Each word is perfectly placed. You said something great in the green room that I'd never really noticed before, which is the, um, the, the flow of the poem itself in the earliest stanzas flows over and beyond the rhymes as if he is moving quickly and flowing downhill at dusk. And then he gets to the turn in the poem. When stiff and sore and scarred. And those are beats, those, those are downbeats, yeah. and all of a sudden
1: you realize yeah. you know the heavy... Uh, I uh, love the moment in the poem when he makes fun of himself a little bit. Mm-hmm. He's thinking about his useful aestheticism and how he's almost too sensitive to live. He says, I crave strong sweets, but those seemed strong when I was young. The petal of the rose it was that stung. <laughs> and that grammatical inversion of not, uh, the, the petal of the rose it was that stung. And that has a little air of self-parody in it. That uh, it's There's so much control there where he, where he can make his voice sound just a little oversensitive.
2: Oh, absolutely, and it's an echo of I fall upon the thorns of life, I bleed, right? Yes, and the petals stun me, so I'm more sensitive than Shelley. Even Shelley, Shelley, yeah. (laughs) Um, But uh, what I love about the poem also is that to earthward, I mean, it really is about the arc of a life heading towards the grave uh, to being interred permanently in earth, and as a last attempt to produce intense feeling, one is willing to... Tolerate enormous amounts of all my length. Yeah, I mean, just the f- the force with which he wants uh, to feel something, uh, and that allows him uh, to wish for you know uh, that degree of uh, pain.
0: I I had never read this poem before today. Before you sent it along, Steve, um, and it was it's funny to read a Frost poem, and usually in a Frost poem you can feel as frostiness early on and this one I was like honeysuckle grapevine yes. and then finally <laughs> finally when you get to yeah. the salt you're like ah alright you get <laughs> to those, those like hard flat yeah. earthy words
1: yeah it's but very- he's known he's better known for his less good poems yeah you know the, the one with the two paths in the wood is not terrible but it's not as good as this or the most of it or directive or the old an old man's winter night I mean Frost in a way his, his, he's, he's not known for his best poems uh, so this poem, I, I've recited this poem to an audience that's a pretty smart audience. Who do you think wrote it? I have no idea. Huh. Though it's your, you know, the big national poet. Amazing.
2: All right. Well, we have you here. We have to ask you. There's no answer to it. But in your current mood. Uh, uh, tell us a favorite poem.
1: Well, my mood just changed uh, because all of these poems were uh, very, very great poems, beautiful poems, more or less in traditional meters. So I think it might be important to have a poem in free verse. Uh, so I'll do a very short poem by William Carlos Williams. William Carlos Williams, you know, was a medical doctor. He was said to have kept the typewriter in his office so he could do a quick poem between patients. <laughs> uh, And the poem just describes the roofers. And I think it's a good demonstration of how free verse, too, is intensely musical in the vowels and consonants. This poem starts off in the key of eh, and it modulates into ooh. (laughs) Fine work with pitch and copper. Now they're resting in the fleckless light separately and in unison like the saxes-sifted stone stacked regularly by twos about the flat roof, ready after lunch to be opened and strewn. The copper in eight-foot strips has been beaten lengthwise at right angles and lies ready to edge the coping. One still chewing picks up a copper strip and runs his eye along it. And it's such great noticing, aside from how beautiful the sound, having mid- the middle sentence of the three is could be in a roofer's manual. The copper in eight foot strips has been beaten lengthwise at right angles and lies ready to edge the coping. One still chewing picks up a copper strip and runs his eye along it. And Williams notices things like when you're, you're eating and about to start work, you give yourself the luxury of doing both at once and sort of chewing and looking down that piece of copper. Um, It's the alertness of his eye and what he notices that he records by making such great music out of free verse. He did say somewhere that uh, when he was young he more or less memorized the entire Palgrave's treasury, which is this basically 19th century anthology of poetry. And he absorbed the, the... Keats and Milton, and he made it into these other free verse American rhythms. So I was going to do a Yeats, but I decided we needed. Oh uh, man, which Yeats? <laughs> I was going to do Adam's Curse. I there? was going to do Adam's Curse. that's so great. We've grown, <laughs> we've grown as weary hearted as. I could say it, and then you could just cut it out of the podcast. <laughs> I don't think we have to hear it.
0: <laughs> All right.
1: This is. When you have the man in the room, you want the full Pinsky. As long as the full Pinsky sounds like it belongs to that other discussion. (laughs) (laughs) He did the full Pinsky. (sighs) Adam's Curse. We sat together at one summer's end, that beautiful, mild woman, your good friend, and you and I, and talked of poetry. I said, a line may take us hours, maybe, Yet, if it doesn't seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been naught. Better get down upon your marrow bones and scrub a kitchen pavement or break stones like an old pauper in all kinds of weather. For to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all of these and yet be thought an idler by the noisy set of bankers, schoolmasters, and clergymen the martyrs call the world. And thereupon... That beautiful, mild woman, for whose sake there's many a one shall find out all heartache on finding that her voice is sweet and low, said, To be born a woman is to know, although they do not talk of it at school, that we must labor to be beautiful. I said, It's certain there's no fine thing since Adam's fall but needs much laboring. There have been lovers who thought love should be so much compounded of high courtesy that they would sigh and quote with learned looks precedents out of beautiful old books. But now it seems an idle trade enough. We sat grown quiet at the name of love. We watched the last embers of twilight die and in the trembling blue-green of the sky, a moon, so pale, It seemed to be a shell washed by time's waters as they rose and fell about the stars and broke in days and years. I had a thought for no one's but your ears, that you were beautiful, and that I strove to love you in the old highway of love, that it had all seemed happy, and yet we'd grown as weary-hearted as that hollow moon. Thank you so much.
2: You. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Robert Pinsky. All right, well, if you haven't uh, wearied of us, we have a little uh, ritual at the end of our program. It's called endorsing. Would you stick around and endorse with us? Sure. Sure, that was a micro hesitation there. That was, that was in my seat, Dana, what do you got?
3: Okay, that was so good. <laughs> I love the shift to the direct address at the end of that poem. Oh,
1: and where he breaks your heart—it's all an account of a conversation, right? And, and then he it says, becomes... "What he's thinking is, this has all gone wrong."
4: Mm-hmm. Huh.
3: Yeah, it's a great, great shift. All right, so my endorsement. Um, so, uh, Bill Moyers is a national treasure. He's a beloved journalist. He's 80 years old now, and after multiple exits from TV and faux retirements, he's still doing a show on PBS. It's called Bill Moyers and Company. It's just half an hour long. And I've always said this about Bill Moyers. I think I talked about this when after Maurice Sendak died and we did a, a segment on him and said that the best interview I'd seen with him and really one of the best interviews with an artist that I'd ever seen was by Bill Moyers. And so there's something about when he speaks to someone who's really a great artist, somebody who really sort of has that kind of step- and that kind of relationship to their work that he can get amazing things out of them and his last interview or maybe second to last on his show Bill Moyers and company was with Marilyn Robinson the novelist who just came out with a new novel Lila the third in a, a trilogy that she's written and it's sort of a big deal for Marilyn Robinson to write a novel she's not very prolific has gotten more so in recent years but it's really great to have her come out of the woodwork and have this conversation with Bill Moyers and it's a wonderful conversation it just really feels like she's dispensing wisdom you know she's just sort of strewing wisdom truth and beauty before the viewer so I really recommend Bill Moyer's interview with Marilyn Robinson on, a, on the PBS
0: website
2: Fantastic. Julia Turner what do you have?
0: So we talked on our show last week about Serial which is the awesome new podcast from, the, this, from this American Life crew um, Oh this is a good test Okay So are you clapping because you've heard it? instead just clap if you've listened to Serial
2: Okay Clap if you think he's innocent. Okay? Clap if you think he's guilty. Um, (laughs) Nail-biter.
0: All right. So, but there is another great new serialized podcast product out there, which is Startup. How many of you guys have listened to that? Okay. Uh oh! In the in the war of podcast giants, I think Serial is winning by a hair. Um, but Startup is is the new podcast from Alex Bloomberg, who's uh, one of the founders of Planet Money, and did some of my favorite pieces on this American Life. He's a great audio investigative journalist. His explanations of patent trolls and of um, the financial crisis. He's done a couple of really interesting long form series for this American life. Anyway, he's got a new podcast. That's all about his new business, which is an attempt to start a podcast empire essentially. Um, And he's features his conversations with his wife, his 3am anxieties about what it means to start a business. um, You know, his attempt to recruit a partner, their awkward negotiation over how much of a stake that partner should have as an owner. And that partner is, um, a great character in the show. He's very reasonable. He's very smart. He comes up with business plans. He helps rein in the kind of zany creative force that is Alex Bloomberg, which we learn a little bit more about than, than we've gotten in previous doses. If you're a fan of his work and do you know who he is? Matt Lieber, our first producer, one of our first producers, the man who reigned us in. <laughs> yeah, when we were when we were all knock kneed and we didn't know each other, and he would like tell us to act like we knew each other. <laughs> and then eventually we got to know each other, and it all worked out. Um, but anyway, startup has gotten a little bit less hubbub, but it's just great. It's totally fascinating. I love hearing more about the way um, Alex's brain works and. In addition, it's you. You. I feel like we live in this era of the rosy profile, where you go back to the heady founding days and the dirty dorm room and the garage and the whatever. But there, you're getting the real deal while they're actually in the middle of it, so it doesn't have that gloss of history. So, um, subscribe it and start subscribe to it and start listening to it if you haven't yet.
2: All right, Mr. Pinsky,
1: what do we have? Um, as a book of poetry books of poetry to read to children. People often want something to read to their kids. My kids love the poems of Walter Delamere. Uh, Walter Delamere, he's not as well known as Edward Lear for some reason. And in a way, they're somewhat older kids and uh, I think a wonderful uh, Christmas present for a family would be the uh, poetry of Walter Delamere.
2: Wonderful. All right, well, um, to conclude, um Are you a Randall Jarrell? Are you a fan of his criticism at all? Yes. Poetry in the
1: Age. It was a terrific book. Well, he also wrote a very... The Bat Poet. What's that? The Bat Poet. Ah. It's his children's poem.
2: Oh, okay. I didn't know that poem. I thought I was trying to dissipate what
1: you were saying.
4: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, Not that one. And (laughs) fails. And and (laughs) fails. Yeah. I thought you said, Andy's a bad
1: poet. And I thought, (laughs) (laughs) you speak ill of the dead. Um, I think he had that slight joke in mind. The ah, character is a bat, but he is a bat poet.
2: Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So I am going to endorse. I was thinking, okay, so my, when I sit on a stage in Boston, Massachusetts, I think of two things preeminently. The first is the great line from Spinal Tap, it's not a big college town. Uh, <laughs> Get out. Don't worry that you're not selling out the Wilbur guys, um, which I think we did, so it's fine. But, um, and then uh, the second thing I think is that it's a bunch of, you know, sort of the American Athenians or, or you know, sort of Athenian Puritans, uh, super educated, uh, you know, uh, university associated uh, uh, geniuses, which puts me to mind to the things that rescued my sanity when I felt like the preeminent idiot of my graduate program in English at Yale, um, not in Boston. Which is, uh, my um, sanity was kept somewhat in balance by academic satires. Lucky Jim being, I think, the greatest one ever, uh, this un, unsurpassably great academic satire by Kingsley Amos takes place in, in England in the, I believe, 50s. But, uh, however, there's one that people don't read that often, which is, grows of academe everyone reads also when you move on from Lucky Jim. But the other one is, Randall Jarrell wrote uh, a very peculiar book. It's not really a novel. He called it Pictures from an Institution because there's something static about it and it's very much portraiture and the central figure in it is Mary McCarthy as she enters, uh, it's a Romana, Romana Clay about Mary McCarthy entering his institution, which at the time was maybe Bennington or I Wellesley. Was, or I think it was Bennington. Yeah, Bennington. And, and someone has got a, it could have been, it could have been, can you give me five? <laughs> I'm, I'm rapping here. Uh, no, it, it could have been. I think they all taught it all. It, you know, it, it's Sarah Lawrence, but I think she may have been at Bennington with Jarrell for a while. We'll, we'll we're getting this. a lot
0: of submissions from this crowd. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the point being, she had come to anatomize in this reptilian way academia and and leave it kind of quivering and, and half dead. And he became fascinated with her doing this and created this astonishing portrait of her along the way to talking about what the real predicament of academia was in the United States in the 50s. I believe he wrote it in the 50s, uh, which was that you would put all of these people into a hothouse and the university was now the patron to the, or going to be a great patron of the arts. And he gets at the predicament of being the person who's responsible for injecting spontaneity into this airless chamber, and whether that's uh, a, a privilege or a curse. It's a wonderful book. Uh, so Pictures from an Institution.
0: That sounds great. <laughs> I'm going to read that and The bad Poet. <laughs>
2: oh, my God. I feel like I need a huff on an iron lung after that. That's, that was a hell of a wind-up... Uh, Robert Pinsky, thank you so much for joining us tonight. All right, I do believe that there's drinking going on after we stop. Oh, Q and A, and then some drinking. So stick around for that. Uh, and this brings us to the end of this, the Boston Live Culture Gab Fest. Boston. Thank you so much. Awesome time. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. Thanks also to Aaron Bergen, Shannon Hansen, and Lindsay Nelson, and to the staff and management of this, the beautiful Wilbur Theater in Boston. It is a great place. And especially big thanks once again to our sponsor, Acura, for bringing the Gabfest to five, count them, five cities nationwide this fall. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and the wonderful Robert Pinsky, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. We're going to take about four or five questions. I think there's a hot mic over there.
1: What about the guitar in the room? (laughs) All
2: right. Let me me examine the patient.
0: (laughs) We'll take a question while Steve gets acquainted.
2: Hi. um Hi. I'd just like to, first, for Julia, first, I'd like to say, I think Brian Lauder, uh, June Thomas, and the, the wonderful Simon Duned would make a great gay gab fest for Slate.
0: That would be, I would listen to that for sure. Andy Bowers uh, is the man to talk to. I'm, he's nodding in the wings.
2: The, the question I have for you is, um, I'd like you to talk about Ebola, um, just sort of, um, <laughs> just okay. generally. Uh, No, but talk about Ebola in terms of, you know, how pop culture, uh, internet culture, the media have kind of fed into the whole hysteria about Ebola in the United States.
0: Um, Yes, I can talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I mean, it's a really interesting position to be in journalistically, right? Because there's a set of... um, I mean, the reasonable thing to do is to not freak out, right? Like, it is not as contagious as we've been led to believe that it is from countless movies with Rene Russo in a hazmat suit. Um, but on the other hand, it's very scary. It's very unfamiliar. It now seems like the early cases in the United States have been mishandled in ways that do raise concerns beyond what we were initially told. And so there's a role for journalists in dispensing public health information and saying, don't freak out, and here's how it's actually transmitted, and in fact, hysteria is not useful. Um, but when then the public health apparatus falls down on the job, but there's also a role for journalism pointing out those lapses and mistakes and finding the right balance between you know, c- covering whether the response has been reasonable and appropriate uh, and freaking people out all the time is, is a difficult one to strike. We're lucky at Slate to have a, just a great science editor who's been a constant voice of reasonableness in her assigning on this. So, um, that's been terrific. Just as a citizen and like person who takes airplanes and, um, you know, like uses public restrooms and whatever, it is interesting, I think, in a case like this to square what the culture has taught you about epidemics and pandemics with the news events i mean if you watch movies like if you watch outbreak or you watch the hot zone or you know i guess contagion the recent soderbergh movie had a slightly different ending even the um the whole planet of the apes franchise that's happening right now posits like a pandemic that's wiped out the globe walking dead the most popular show in the history of the universe also it's you know as all zombie movies are basically contagion movies right um And they never end the way this one will likely end, which is with lots and lots of very sad deaths, um, but probably not the end of life on earth as we know it. And so when you see the beginning of a story that in the movie always ends with the end of life on earth as we know it. Uh, it's a little hard to know how to respond emotionally to a news story that that you don't see play out in a more realistic way on film. I don't know, Dana, if you've had thoughts about this.
3: I mean, we actually, believe it or not, talked about talking about Ebola and the kind of cultural reaction there, too, for this show. We were trying to just talk about, you know, come up with topic ideas and say, well, what's hot right now? What do people care about? What are people talking (laughs) about? It's hot. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's it's in the sense of like holding a hot pan and dropping it, right? Like, what is making people, like, jump back into you? Good
2: save. Right?
3: (laughs) (laughs) And in in the end, we couldn't, because of the, the, precisely because of the danger that somebody would come out and say something like that. It was just, it was too hot of a topic to talk about in a live show. Essentially, it didn't work.
0: Well, and I'm still waiting for someone to write the great essay about how these cultural presentations of it shape the way you perceive the actual version of it, I think. I mean, I think there is probably some interesting essay to be mined there, but we haven't We have it. And Honestly,
3: yet. me, from a personal point of view, when I see, you know, Americans with our affluent society and our great medical system getting all head up about the fact that two people have died in the country of Ebola, and I think about the damage that it's wreaked already in Africa, and that suddenly we're all talking about it now because of that, I don't know, it, this all seems a little unseemly to me. And the number... Of-
2: And here's a little PSA the number of people who will die because they didn't get a flu shot. Like, get a flu shot. Come on. Yeah, get a flu shot. Lots of different ways to live. Choose life. Uh, Steve
0: now has, uh, just narrating for our listeners at home, the guitar is blue, it's lovely. Uh, it's sitting on Steve's lap, and there is strumming happening. <laughs>
2: If you think I'm going to sing something, you are (laughs) fucked in the head. You
0: promised. All right. Another question. All right. (laughs) All right. All right. We'll take one. We'll take another question and let him let him absorb those booze. And then his his ego can fight his pride. And
2: Okay. (laughs) great. Uh, I have a question for Dana Stevens, which is if you were an all powerful producer and you were charged with making the great Moby Dick Hollywood adaptation, <laughs> who would you have direct it, and who would you cast?
3: Oh, wow. That's, oh I, needed, I need an hour with a pen and paper to come up with an answer to that. I mean, that's sort of a famously unfilmable, right? That's, if, if you can think of one unfilmable American novel, it has to be
0: Moby Dick. Think Could of the ambergris montage.
2: <laughs> okay, would you rather have Paul Thomas Anderson or Wes Anderson direct the movie? <laughs>
3: Uh, you know actually paul thomas anderson would certainly be interested in the themes and the questions of moby dick i don't know i think to really really do it you would have to make it almost a mini series or a 12 hour long movie you know to get any kind of sense of of how many mountains have to be scaled you know in order to get through that story you would need i don't know somebody who's not alive anymore (laughs) like like uh, abel Gunz, you know the filmmaker who made that that Three part, three screen, twelve hour Napoleon movie, or some, something gargantuan. I don't know. I don't have an answer, but you'd have to have, you'd have to have somebody write it. Like, who's who's even alive that could write that screenplay? I don't know. Maybe you'd have to travel back in time and get Dalton Trumbo to write the screenplay and Abel Gantz to direct it. I don't know. People people who aren't here anymore. I wouldn't. I wouldn't take on such a project. I'm um,
2: digging the Dalton Trumbo name check. <laughs> so awesome. He was one of the Hollywood Eight, or whatever the number. He was. He was one of
3: the blacklisted screenwriters. Yeah, he was yeah he's just sort of one of the great legendary screenwriters. I mean, I'm, it, to film great literature, you have to have a great artist, and I don't know if there's any filmic artist I can think of right now who could grapple with that. That's so
0: depressing. I, that can't be true. I don't know. I would watch. I like your mini series idea. Let's just get this going. Let's do Paul, <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, eight episodes. Let's be reasonable, Dana. Um, <laughs> I think we'll just throw Michael Keaton in as Ahab and. <laughs> No, he wouldn't be a good Ahab. Anyway, all right, all right, Steve, you ready, or do
2: we need to do one more? Uh, this is just—I mean, it's like this is a trust fall off of the fucking Empire State. You
3: promised. Right. Can we do one more question? I see an eager face at the mic. We've only had two. I,
2: you got, got to see right? me make guitar face. What do you want? <laughs> So I'm going to start out by doing something I don't do at work and kiss your ass a little bit. Um, your um, podcast has been a constant companion for me for many, many years, um, first on with my iPod and now with my iPhone. Um, and uh, Stephen, you have sent me running to the dictionary so many times. words <laughs> I'm like, who really talks like that? Uh, <laughs> Um, So my question is, you know, you've you've, uh, discussed cultural issues, both high and low. Um, What's your guilty pleasure? You talking to me? I'm talking to all three of you. Oh, okay. Or four, if we want to (laughs) count Professor
4: Pinsky.
0: I don't think there are guilty pleasures anymore because we've all embraced our low culture selves. And we all shouted from the rooftops. Don't we?
3: I mean, I feel like we're always embracing guilty pleasures on the show. That's a lot of what endorsement seems like it's about. They happen to be kind of highbrow today, but most of the time, I feel like we're right down there you know, wallowing in the pop culture mud.
0: I mean, I think, you know, when we had that conversation with Carl Wilson at our Montreal show and he, in his great book, which we'll just all endorse again, Let's Talk About Love by Carl Wilson, which is an examination of taste in the form of a very close reading of a Celine Dion album, Um, you know, but but he talks, that's basically what that book is about, is sort of the end of shame and the kind of like schmaltzy middle brow that's the last thing that it's not cool to like. But now it's cool to like, Carl's book about Celine Dion. So, and to even like Celine Dion, I don't know. I don't think there are guilty pleasures anymore for me. Steve, what are you, you must have shame. Steve. Okay.
2: So I went, on, <laughs> I went on, um, uh, hang up and listen the uh, sports podcast. I heard that. You that heard was, that? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> and, um, they, they asked, you know, it used to be, well, anyway, I, I won't frame it quite that way. They asked me to talk about the jets and New York jets. And, uh, I think they sat back in horror at what they had unleashed, <laughs> and I think right around when I was saying that the number four wide receiver on the Jets ran a crisp, uh, he ran a crisp pattern and had plus hands. Uh, I Josh Levine, in that dry Josh Levine way, says, "So, Steve, is this uh, is this what you're thinking about when Dana and Julia are talking?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh yeah." Nailed it. No, no, I'm a jet. Like, I'm just so bizarrely obsessed with the Jets. And I'm at that moment where I'm a... I have to give... You have to give up the sport in good conscience. I mean, it's just... It's just too... You can't... You can't watch it anymore. You can't. But you're not going to, are you? I am trying not to... Did you see my tooth, by the way? Have I told you about... Did you listen to the LA show? Maybe not. I lost the tooth. And it hasn't been replaced yet. And when I laugh really hard, which is... Almost never a danger with these two, no kidding <laughs> no, uh, you can see this like huge it sends this kind of cold electric shiver up people 's spines when i 'm in the middle of charming them, so anyway, what were we talking about?
0: I think, I think you were saying that football is your guilty pleasure
2: no I, I think you can 't I, I try not to I try not to give it any money like I try not to let it monetize my fascination with it.
0: Well, I don't know what that means if you're like streaming Bulgarian broadcasts or something, but okay. Um, all right. Any more questions there? So in your discussion of Birdman, you talked about one particularly nasty stereotype of a critic as sort of a crabby hater. Uh, and I recently heard a totally different sort of dig at cultural critics from perhaps a surprising source John and Craig from the Script Notes podcast were on your last live show, and then I listened to their podcast following their appearance on your show, and um, I was a little surprised to hear them put in some harsh digs against culture critics as being overly intellectual elitists operating in an echo chamber talking to one another. (laughs) (laughs) And I wondered, uh, first, if you had heard that and were surprised, uh, uh, and also what you might say in response. Um, I haven't listened to that show yet, although I did see that they had a little after segment where they discussed the segment we had together. We have not recorded an after segment yet, but perhaps we should listen to theirs and then record our own. (laughs) Um, I, yeah, I can't really respond without having heard what they said. I think those guys are really smart when they talk about the craft of screenwriting. I'm just going to leave it there because apparently that was a sick burn. I would only add that that I expected that on
3: stage from them because that kind of enmity between critics and creators of culture it just it's it's a very deep thing that goes way back at the New York Film Critics Circle awards dinner that happens every year every speech is some sort of you know snarky roast from by the person getting an award to the people giving them an award you know and so there's, <laughs> this, there's this weird back and forth it's all part of the you know cultural machine so it doesn't bother me at all
0: Okay my question is for Robert Pinsky um, you wrote the libretto for Todd McOver's opera, Death in the Powers, which was here in Boston four or so years ago, created in collaboration with the MIT Media Lab. And as we delve further into the 21st century, I'm curious, and technology is taking over all of our lives and the arts, I'm curious how much of the technology played a part in your creation of the libretto.
1: The libretto is about robots.
0: Right. <laughs> the opera is
1: about It's a robots. robot opera. And the central character is a super cajillionaire. He's a kind of a combination of Walt Disney and, I guess, Bill Gates or somebody. And he has his consciousness downloaded uh, so that he can go out of his physical body, but his consciousness is still there, and he wants his family to follow him. He has a daughter with a social conscience, doesn't want that to happen. And there are robots. Uh, The robots are a big feature of the opera Uh, so to say I wasn't influenced by technology would be (laughs) strange. Um, I do notice that the headlines seem that there are more and more feature stories that seem to be uh, about our opera. I must say the opera, it it premiered in Monaco, then it was done across the street here at the uh, Majestic, and it recently was done in Dallas, and I had seen those other performances, and this is about technology, I guess, I watched it on a podcast at MIT. Not podcast, what do I mean? Simulcast. The sim- old Robert's birthday. We're just going to edit
0: that right out in the podcast. The
1: simulcast. Because it's a podcast, you just said That's simulcast. The simulcast, I had a director, I was interested in the film thing, I had a director telling me where to look. I wasn't always looking at the same robot or the same singer. And it was a much more satisfying aesthetic experience for me to see Death and the Powers in that simulcast. Uh, It was better for me cinematically than in the theater. That may just be autobiography, but it may be something about the tech. There's a lot of technology in there, three huge, I forget what they're called, tall triangles that rotate and they function as screens. So there's a lot of images and these robots are moving around. And then there are the singers. And I found the technology of the opera was more effective and more dramatic when I watched it on a screen with the director helping me watch it. And I wrote the thing.
0: <laughs> um, all right. I think that's enough questions, right? But- are we good? Steve, you have to sing something. You have to. It can can be like a verse, but your voice must alight. I think
2: you promised singing
0: singing one by Bono on one knee in Bono voice, but you can pick something else.
2: I see the look of incipient horror on your face.
0: It's not. I'm so Otherwise excited. Otherwise known as
2: Incipient. I don't know why. I love Incipient, just sounds right to me. <laughs> oh, do you feel the same? <laughs> I can't. I mean, how can I pos- I have a great story about why I gave up doing this.
0: No, just, just one line, one line. Bono voice. So far, Bono voice.
2: Wait, let's see, what's up. Oh, I know one, because I can speak it. Dressed up like a car crash Wheels are spinning, but you're upside down
0: You're a brave man. What's that? I said, You're a brave man.
2: I, I'm going to go take so many drugs. <laughs> All right, that's the Culture Gap Fest. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming out.